0: Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Klinger. Innovation is a word that gets tossed around often, so much in fact that we lose sight of what innovation really means or looks like. Most of those references to innovation that we see come in the world of technology. However, sports is no stranger to innovation, and there is an amazing crossroads of sports and technology that has flourished in recent years. When it comes to innovation, there's no better person to help us understand than our guest today, Josh Walker. Josh is the co-founder and president of Sports Innovation Lab, where he oversees the company's innovative and proprietary market intelligence platform. Through market analysis and unbiased research, he empowers brands to develop and implement game-changing breakthrough experiences in a new age of sports and entertainment fandom. His work at Sports Innovation Lab represents the convergence of his career as a researcher, advisor, Entrepreneur, and sports journalist. A former vice president of research at Forrester, Josh was responsible for launching the company's Forrester Wave evaluation framework designed to accelerate innovation by connecting technology buyers with the best vendors. After Forrester, Josh spent time as an entrepreneur in residence at General Catalyst advising fast-growing companies, including Brightcove, Kayak, and Demandware. He soon became a serial entrepreneur himself, using his passion for technology and data to launch and grow several venture-backed companies such as City Voter, Comlink Data, and Saddleship. Josh is a graduate of Middlebury College and lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's an absolute pleasure to have Josh on the show to share his experience and insight. So we hope you all enjoy Adam's conversation with Josh Walker. Welcome to the
1: Revenue Above Replacement podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With me from the Sports Innovation Lab is Josh Walker. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, it's great to have you. We've had a lot of discussions over the years, both in the class and outside of the classroom. But for those who are new to learning about Josh, can you give us your background today, particularly how you got to this position, given your long track record of success in multiple different fields?
2: Yeah, and um, I'll go a little bit further back than I usually do, just because it's usually helpful for students to understand that there's no straight path to uh, a career in sports or um, any career for that uh, example. matter. Um, So I started my career right out of college. I went to school at Middlebury in Vermont and I wanted to be a sportscaster. So I got a job as an intern at a soft radio music station cutting tape uh, back in 96. And um, it was one of those situations where you were surrounded by people who had worked in the radio industry forever. And they kept saying to me like, oh, if you put your time in, you could have your own show someday. And I was always curious as to how much time that meant, and there was many years in their opinion, so I was like, "Ah, I don't think I'm going to be here for many years. So um, basically bolted, went up to Boston, um, tried to get a bunch of internships with newspapers to become a sports writer, um, got out of the broadcast bit for for a bit, and um, same thing did some writing for local newspapers and all the older uh, people there were like, Oh, if you put your time in, you know, you might have your own column someday. And I'm like, all right, how long would that take? And they're like a couple of years. And I was like, ah, I don't think I'm going to be here that long. So as it turns out, I couldn't pay rent and all my buddies were going out to bars and having a good time. And um, so I got a job at an internet company and this was 1997. And the internet company made me fascinated about technology. And, uh, and I think this will, kind of come full circle when we talk about how to hire people and what to look for is like, I was just curious. I was curious how the internet worked and I wanted to understand this technology. So I started staying late at night, reading nerd books and just trying to figure out why the internet was working the way it was, why AOL was successful, why this new MySpace site was becoming popular. And um, that stoked Um, some curiosity into technology that really propelled my career in a whole new direction. I stopped thinking about becoming a sportscaster and I just started learning about technology because it was fascinating how this stuff worked. And I got a job at Forrester Research, which is where um, I really cut my teeth on consumer research, understanding what drives consumer behavior. Um, And I spent six years there and it was really when the internet was exploding. So I got exposed to all kinds of really interesting companies. I always say that's where I got my MBA. Um, and I think you can always think about your first job as a place to get your MBA instead of going to business school, um, because if you're challenged and if you're in an environment that's moving fast, you can usually get a tremendous amount of exposure and, and work experience. So um, after Forrester, I, I think that's really where I started becoming an entrepreneur, uh, went into venture capital for a year as an entrepreneur in residence. The whole job was to find a company to go work for. And once you found the company to work for, you were supposed to go work on those teams. And I kind of failed at that. I didn't find a company I wanted to work for. Um, But I did realize I wanted to start my own company. So my brother and I started a company that competed with Yelp. Um, it was called city voter. Uh, it had about 4 million registered users. We worked with all the local television stations across the country, CBS, NBC, Hearst and Fox. And what we did was kind of similar to anybody who lives in Chicago or Boston is like the best of city. You would come online and you'd vote for your favorite burger joint, or you'd come online and you'd vote for your favorite, um, you know, hotel or whatever it was. And the whole idea was that people don't have time to read reviews. They just want to know the best five places to grab a piece of pizza. Um, So we were trying to create a voter-based way of doing that. And that led me to understanding how to collect consumer data, analyze consumer data, really understand what motivates consumers um, at a local level, but also at a national level. And um, after that, I I worked at another company where um, we sold a business that tracked whether people were Moving from one telephone company to another. So if you're switching from Verizon to T-Mobile, we could figure that out because we're analyzing really interesting data. Um, and then when I left that job, I was like, "Wow, you know, telecom's really boring." Um, I'd love to do something in an area that I know and care a lot about. And that was sports. Um, So I started trying to teach kids math using real-time sports data. And I met a really, really smart guy, uh, David Terreston, who was a great coder and he started building all these really cool games and we just couldn't find anybody to pay for it. But through that process, I met a bunch of sports executives that were like enamored with the thing that I learned at Forrester, which was, that technology's changing behavior, and they didn't know how. So the sports industry really wanted us to figure out how to do that for them, which was help me understand how technology technology's changing fan behavior. And that was the origin of Sports Innovation Lab. That's where I met um, Isaiah and Angela, and we started the business back in 2017. We started the business with one key thesis which is that the diehard fan is not the future for the sports industry but this fluid fan is and the fluid fan is open to change empowered to choose and continuously evolving they're not that fan that's going to sit in the plastic seat for four hours and watch a game so that's my entire career in about five minutes um but it's but it's not as so much about like how I got to where I am is like all the different hops you take, they don't ever really make sense, but then they sort of do in the end. So have some patience with yourself and sort of let your, let your career take the shape that it's going to.
1: Yeah. And I I want to follow up on two points to start out with in your earlier career. You mentioned at Forrester, you talked about how technology is influencing behavior and maybe not the other way around. Can you provide more kind of, insight detail about how you think about that. Cause I I do think that's a key component of the stuff you're working on now. It's something I find very interesting.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think you know it when you see it, but to study it at scale is really cool. Right. So as a professor, you probably notice when students come in with new laptops or different phones Mm -hmm. or, you know, they're, they're on different sites. um, Those things happen so fast now, you know, like the, 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 the things that were relevant to somebody in their 40s aren't relevant to somebody in their 30s, aren't relevant to somebody in their 20s. We all used very different products and services. So I can't even relate to what my kids are doing on gaming platforms now like they're buying loot boxes and they're trading merchandise and they're like and they in some ways they're learning a lot more about business a lot earlier than i did because they understand economics and marketplaces and things like that so you have to be mindful of that right because if a child that's on a gaming platform right now is using a technology that teaches him how to trade and value and and understand currency, then some of these crazy ideas like NFTs that are out there to our generation is like, well, maybe they're not that crazy. Maybe like kids will do that in like five or 10 years. Maybe that is real. Um, so you got to look at these emerging technologies, not as like a way to just get enamored by the next shiny thing, but what are they doing at the core, like how are they currently changing, like the way we think, what we learn, what we know, and then you can really understand how the the future fan or or the future consumer is going to behave.
1: Yeah. And I think we should come back to that. Particularly, you mentioned the fluid fan. I know that's obviously a central component of the sports innovation lab, and I want to come back to that, but I do want to continue with the earlier part of your career. Particularly, you said you worked in the sports content more, but then you went outside of sports before coming back into sports. Can you talk about how your career outside of sports and kind of gaining knowledge outside of sports has impacted your ability to be successful in a career in sports?
2: Well, I mean, I think you've probably had the same experience, which is if you master a skill, and in your case, you mastered the ability to you know, measure and quantify and come up with really interesting ways to value things, that's a universal skill. It's a horizontal skill, in my opinion, and then you, you can apply it to any vertical. If you learn how to do something that's technology related or data related, it's a horizontal skill, right? And then you can go, oh, I want to apply that to healthcare. Or, oh, I want to apply that to sports, or I want to apply that to entertainment. The technology thing, again, even till this very day, the stuff I learned in the 90s is universally valuable to me in any conversation. I understand how databases work. I understand what data looks like. I understand the problems with storing data, moving data. I understand how applications crash and why you have to test them and how you have to test them. Um, Because like so many times you'll be at a bar with a friend. They're like, Hey, we should build an app. You know, and it's like, I got a business idea We should build an app. And by understanding all the different things that go into doing that, you, you, you make smarter decisions in your career.
1: I I can't let that one slide. So when people say they want to build an app, what's the number one mistake or one of the things that they, when they talk about building an app that you're like, I don't know. We really
2: thought this through. Ah, uh, distribution. Yeah, cost per acquisition. Like you just got to think about like how the hell is anybody going to know your app exists? So build the best app in the world. Build the coolest app in the world. Have the greatest idea in the world. How are they going to know it exists? The marketing cost to get an app in front of the right consumers. I, I just, I don't. You know, unless you have the most creative grassroots marketing campaign that's going to get viral, you're going to spend millions and millions of dollars just letting people know your app exists.
1: I guess on that front, that's actually a good segue. You mentioned your career as an entrepreneur. Obviously, that continues now, but it started pretty early, starting working at General Catalyst and moving into multiple different ventures from there. Can you talk more about how your entrepreneurial background and career, A, why did you decide that was something you wanted to pursue? And B, again, how does that impacted your career now as you've gone into different ventures and in different industries? Uh, I know there are two large questions. I so mean, let's start yeah, with I, mean, First.
2: I don't know. I mean, I think there's two things I noticed about myself very early on, which is like I was impatient. You yeah. know had ADD. I, I didn't want to do the same thing over and over again. In fact, even though I stayed at Forrester for six years, I literally had a different job every year I was there. And one year, the CEO put me in the IT department because I was such a pain in his ass. He was like, if you really want to work on technology, go work in the ID department. So they put me in the closet for like a few hours. <laughs> Made me sad. Um, <laughs> The the so I'm impatient. I think that's one thing. If you're you're an entrepreneur, you're you're sort of you don't look at the world as the way it is, you look at the world as the way you want it to be, right? You're always trying to think about like why isn't this better? Why does this experience suck? Why hasn't somebody figured this out yet? And if you're constantly asking yourself those questions, and I do that all the time, drive my wife crazy, it's like Why hasn't somebody fixed this problem? It's a. Everybody understands it's a problem. Everybody's online ranting about the problem. Why hasn't somebody fixed it? And then the second rule is, if you have an idea on how to fix something, and General Catalyst is where I learned this, there's already six other people, minimum, six mm-hmm. other people doing the same thing. They might be doing it differently, but there's six other people that are absolutely working on that at the same time your job is to figure out what those six people are doing. And if like, you've actually got a better idea. And I love that game. It's like sports for me. And I was an athlete as a kid. It's like, I love the competition of like, Ooh, wow, that's really cool. But I think they're missing this. And then you kind of like zig while they're zagging. And it's just, you know, it's like, it's a way to feel alive every day to kind of try to build something.
1: So what would you when you're looking to say if I can do something better, what am I doing better? What are you looking for? You mentioned a little bit about like potentially go to market strategy, but what are the types of things that you're looking for when you're thinking about I can do this better?
2: For me right now, at the stage of my company, it's it's operate better. It's like be focused, be you know, motivate a team in the middle of a pandemic. That's all, you know, working remote. That's the challenge for me now. It's not this macro, like, do I have the product market fit? Right. Is the industry ready for what we're doing it for me? It's much more at home, right? It's much more like, Hey, can I keep these people motivated? Can I keep them focused on what we're trying to accomplish? Uh, We talk about changing the world. Like the sports innovation lab is about shaping the future through the power of sports. That's a big lofty idea to come to work every day and feel like you're doing that when you're actually in the minutia of doing some crappy spreadsheet or some, you know, PowerPoint. Like it doesn't feel like you're changing the world, but then, you know, every once in a while we, we can claim credit for being involved in like really, really big deals that happened that, you know, help the NWSL, help the WNBA. Um, and that's where I think a lot of us start to feel like what we are doing is making a difference.
1: Yeah, I think we'll we'll transition into core of what you're doing at Sports Innovation Lab, but also cannot let this one slide. So when you tell your wife about ideas or things that you see, what is what's her reaction? What does she say about your opinions or your more than opinions, your informed knowledge about
2: what could be? Well, better do you or do you do the same thing? Do you have a million ideas? Yes, so yes. I, your, I try. What your to? wife say? Yeah.
1: Well, she says you know you know. Uh, that's nice, basically. You <laughs> but it's more. Uh, yeah, I'm more curious because it's definitely something like where it's hard to turn that off, right? It's hard to turn off. I that can't, time. Turn yeah, right. can't turn exactly. it off. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, no. kind of what, what what when you talk to either your wife or friends or what what's kind of their feedback when you have other ideas for new ventures or things you think you
2: could do better. <sighs> I think by now, I mean, I'm almost 50. Most of my friends and family know I'm crazy. Um, (laughs) I I think I'm always now what I'm trying to do is I'm not just trying to come up with an idea. I'm trying to get other people to do it because I know I can't do it. Right. So what I really try to do is I try to find my friend who I know is ready to leave his job. And I try to be like, dude, what if, you know, what if you you just did like, yeah, yeah. Walker, I'm never going to do that. Like, I'm not like you. And I'm like, but it would be so cool. Yeah. yeah.
1: I tried that. Right, recently. Yeah. yeah. I had an idea, which I still actually think is a good idea. I might pursue it someday, but I, I had an idea. I was like, oh, you really should do this. It's really in your skill set. It's kind of like, oh yeah, maybe I will. And obviously, yeah, like, yeah. maybe I won't. No. Um, so let's uh, on that happy note, let's transition into the, <laughs> the sports innovation. The world needs about. more entrepreneurs.
0: Yes, I, I, more I agree.
1: But let's say, I mean, like, what you're working on now, particularly Sports Innovation Lab. So, why can you just give up somewhere in between the full detail and the high level of what the Sports Innovation Lab is has is doing now? Also, the evolution of the Sports Innovation Lab from where you started to where you are now.
2: Yeah, we we built this company backwards, um, and I say that a lot because like we built an amazing brand out of the gates, and we always knew we wanted to build a data business, and so we started with this idea of like the world's changing. Technology is changing fan behavior. Let us help you measure that." And what we started with was a thesis that the industry would move faster if they just understood technology if they just had a way to evaluate block six year old company next to hook it next to mvp index next to because they're just inundated with all this technology and all they need is somebody to tell them what to do then they'll do it they'll go buy it because they're dying to do it they're they're just they just need an answer that was not true um what what they were really doing is they were fishing for all kinds of answers to one key question that they didn't have which is who are our fans And when we started the business and we started talking about the future of sports and we talked about this new fan, they're like, yes, the new fan. We don't know who that new fan is. We don't even know who's in our building. Can you help us find that new fan? And that's what we started building the business around. We started trying to figure out every different way that we could go out into the world and look for observational data because I hate survey data. You go out and look for signals that show us what consumers are doing and then help figure out who those fans are. So I can tell the Knicks that their fans are different than the Nets fans because they over-index in this area versus this area. And that's what we spend most of our time doing now. Um, you know this because Block 6 is now part of Excel. and. Excel gets asked to do really strategic work all the time for big brands and properties, like help us rename our stadium or help us buy a New Jersey patch or sell a New Jersey patch. That usually gets easier. If you know how to align the brand with what the fans care about, if the property can't tell you what their fans care about. They can only tell you they're 18 to 35 year old males and they tend to live in suburbia versus bubble on drive Buicks. Then the brand is less inclined to spend as much money to be associated with that. But if I could tell you that this is an audience that is like values-based, really loves sustainability into alternative energy buys electric vehicles and you know is an outdoor enthusiast and you just happen to be a brand that represents all those things then the jersey patch is like just tell me how much
1: i want to come back to the survey question just yeah when you said that but before you do that how how do you do that you just talked about like if a brand's which is obviously different than the fans, which I think is an interesting component of your business, but how do you communicate that? How do you identify that? Well, first, how do you determine that and how do you communicate? These are what your customers care about when it comes to a sports context.
2: Yeah. So what we do is we're not a media measurement company. So if you want to care, you care about what they're watching or what they're clicking on, you go to ComScore Nielsen. If you care about what they're buying, like they're buying Nikes or they're buying from DoorDash versus Uber Eats, or if they're spending money with DraftKings versus FanDuel, or if they're spending money with New Era versus Fanatics, if you're spending money with Live Barn because they're a hockey family and they want to watch their kid playing youth hockey, we can see all those transactions over five years of time across 20 million people. And from that observational data, we build audiences. We build a basketball community. We can segment the basketball community into the WNBA and the NBA and overtime and things like that. But we build a basketball community. We build a hockey community. We build a tennis community. And now what you're looking for is what do those consumers who fit into those communities over index on? Are they more values based than they are sports bettors? Are they more content creators than they are? And you can see transactions that lead you to understand what those behaviors are. For example, if you see Adobe or Canva or some of those like power tools for a content creator, if somebody's spending a lot of money with them, they're a content creator. I mean, there's no reason to spend a lot of money with those tools if you're not doing that stuff. So seeing Adobe and Canva on their direct to consumer market stuff, like skewing higher and higher. That's really interesting because traditionally those used to be agency and B2B tools. But now you have a whole segment of our our entire consumer base that wants to create content. And I think that's the younger generation playing with, you know, their iPhones and everything else and being like, hey, I want some power tools for my, you know, TikTok videos. And so I don't even know what question I was answering. I just started ranting.
1: No, a, no, 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 I think that, okay. I think one of the things you're really focused on, I, what I asked was how do you create those profiles and how can you tell people really care? Yeah. I think the, one of the step changes that you have is actual transaction data, people actually voting with their dollars. Mm-hmm. So when you, you know, like you said, there are other providers that have different information when you talk to either we, what we define as properties, teams, leagues, events, yeah. or when you talk to what we'd say are either brands or companies or the buy side, you know, each may have different responses, but what is the response when you layer on this transaction data with these fan profiles in ways that maybe they haven't or likely have not seen before?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, again, there's like the whole industry has, has this mindset of appends, right, like or enrichment. So if you start talking to a data nerd, they'll be like, oh, can we use your data to append our data or can we enrich our data with your data? What they're really talking about is they have data in their own database, their own CRM system, and they're trying to figure out if my data can be matched to their data. And that's not the business for it. We're in the business of creating really interesting profiles of their customers without touching their data so that they can build... What's generally called a lookalike model says, hey, if we see those customers in our data set, maybe they exist in your database in your CRM, but they certainly exist out on the internet. So you want to go buy those people because it already looks like you've got really valuable people over here.
1: And what's been the response? Obviously, that's like you're saying, you're maybe changing the conversation from a pending to lookalike model. So, what's <clears throat> been the response on both? whether it's on the property side or on the company side.
2: On the brand side, we get lumped into a ad tech marketing conversation. So it gets very technical, very fast. Like, can we match? Can we put this in a clean room? Can we do, you know, hashed email? Dah, 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 dah. Like, and we have to say, look, that's, we're a strategy company that doesn't do media placement or we're not a DSP. We're not a, we're not somebody's going to put ads out on the internet for you that's challenging because that's what they're used to being pitched. But once they understand what we're sitting on, they're like, whoa, how do you have that much credit card data? And what have you done with it? Nobody's done that. Like we can get credit card data. Like we're Nike, we're Gap, we're New Balance. We can get credit card data. We have those partnerships. But then you just have raw credit card data. So all the processing we've done to turn that into something that's interesting has gotten the brands very interested in what we're doing. On the property side, the teams and the leagues, this is a new muscle for them, right? They have not really be, besides ticketing, they have not really gone direct to the consumers to get them to buy anything. They rely on fanatics to sell the jerseys. They rely on ESPN to sell the OTT subscription. They rely on you know Aramark and everybody else to merchandise the food and beverages. So they don't know honestly how to build direct to consumer campaigns beyond you know season ticket packages or or individual ticket promotion nights and stuff like that so it's a really interesting dynamic with them they're just learning how to use this data
1: can you provide either case studies on both, either the property side and the brand side, or one? You mentioned some of the clients that you worked with. Can you just yeah. in detail provide a case study to make it clear for the students exactly what you are talking about?
2: Yeah, we're, I mean, we're working with a number of different MBA teams right now, and I'm working with every single WNBA team. Um, the I'll give you more of a blanket case study, and then we can talk in specifics. Um, they tend to know that their fans are older. That they live in the suburbs and that they don't show up frequently. And if you say, do you know anything else about them? Not really. And so what we do is we come in and we say, well, it looks like you have a more urban consumer who uses ride share, Uber and Lyft, who uses DoorDash and you know, Grubhub, and is a single. They use dating apps, too. They're on dating apps. And they tend to um, spend with more of these game consoles like Xbox, PlayStation, and blah, blah, blah. This is a tech-savvy, informed, urban consumer. They do not live in their database. Or if they do, they don't know who they are, and they have no idea what percentage of their fan base looks like that. So what we're doing is we're creating that persona, and then we're saying, so... Place your media on places, Grubhub, Uber Eats, you know Metro Cards, would be so that you're not spending as much money to go mass market television, and miss that person where you should be, you know, much more targeted on getting that, you know, tech savvy, informed, single urban consumer that's largely what we're doing and for every team i could tell you we're doing that for the wizards i could tell you we're doing that for the blackhawks it's everybody everybody wants that same future fan over here because they know their current fan is older one team told us that they literally send out um season ticket um, reminders and like they're getting notes back that their season ticket holders are dying like that they've literally physically passed away. Um, so, so it's, it's not just a cliche that they're aging out, like they're legitimately aging out of their, their existing client base.
1: And so what you said before, you can make these recommendations, your strategy company. Sometimes people are going to ask, this is great strategy, but how do I actually do this, physically do
2: this? So how do you lead the horse to water in there? Well, we try to work with agency partners to do the creative agency work, right? We're not a creative agency, we're a data business. So the data should lead you to these personas and these audience buying recommendations. And then you should go work with a creative agency to make the right messaging, buy the right media, be in the right place. We're actually doing some of that work right now. And I don't love it because I, I don't think that's the future of my business, but we need it to your point to have that case study. Right. I got to come back and say that look, my media performed at 10%, 20 30% better than your media. Right. But once we have that, Adam, I don't think I'm doing that a lot. I think we're going to be working with Excel, with GMR, with you know, Wasserman, whoever, and let them do their their creative work.
1: One of the things you talked about, I did want to make sure we came back to this, particularly in the context of uh, working better. You talked about the difference between survey data and observational data, particularly transaction data. So from your perspective, what what are the challenges with survey data as compared to the observational
2: data you've been talking about? Well, I I pulled this up just because I knew you're going to ask me that question. Um, So I love this book. Um, so I recommend it. You should all read it if you haven't. So for um,
1: for people on audio only, it's called Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and what the yeah. internet can tell us about yeah. who we really are.
2: Yep. Seth Stevens, Davowitz, um, very smart dude, um, works for the New York Times, I believe. Um, and anyway, his, his whole point is that if you... Ask people something, they give you one answer, but his whole thesis was that if he could watch what they click on and have anonymized search data, he could figure out other things. And he basically his the the title says it all. everybody lies. It's like what you think you like and what you think you do is very much um in opposition of what you actually do. So I am not a huge fan of surveys. We do do surveys full transparency um, because you have to get at the why you have to get at the qualitative information or you at least have to have an informed opinion about why somebody bought Nike instead of Adidas. But again, it's like, unless you hit them at the right period of time, like you and I are very busy. You've got to, young kid. I've got kids, I'm driving everywhere. Who has time to sit around and do a 45 minute survey? Some of these surveys are literally 45 minutes and they can only ask you about 200 brands because after 200 brands, you get fatigued. And there's a really good question about whether you read the 200 brands or you're just like filling in dots just to finish the thing. So like how much stock do you want to put into something like that? That's as a market researcher, I'm very aware of of uh, selection bias and and panel bias and things like that. Can you just talk about
1: what those are, particularly for this audience, selection bias, panel bias?
2: Yeah, there's all these companies that make a ton of money, SurveyMonkey, Qualtrics, um, you know, all these businesses that can field surveys online and you've been four C is another one. You've been to a website, guarantee it. Even if you're uh, a lowly student where you hit the the website and they offer you um, uh, an opportunity to do a survey, those surveys are usually fielded by companies that aggregate the results and sell them. And the people that take the time to do that, that's called like, panel bias or selection bias, because normally busy people don't have the time to do those surveys and they won't do it for a dollar. They won't do it for an Amazon gift card. They won't do it for whatever reward they're trying to give you. So you only get the people that are incentivized by those incentives to fill out the survey. So by design, you've already limited the type of responses you're getting. You're getting responses from people who value $5 gift cards from Amazon.
1: And one of the things that I obviously have sympathy towards this position, so I guess I should be up front of it, but similar to you, we also do use survey data in part because a lot of companies and teams do leverage survey data. It's an important data set for them. So how do you present when people are using brand trackers or using, whether it's the companies you mentioned or other larger scale brand trackers, large scale survey data, how do you respond to that and how do you think about you mentioned a little bit adding the why to the maybe the what, but how do you respond? How do you think about that in the context of what you're doing?
2: I think you're probably better equipped to answer this than I do, but there's some theory or thesis and I forget the name of it, where it's like if the if the size of the panel is big enough, you remove the noise, right? And as a statistician, I should look this up or something, but it's like you you need to have a large enough sample. And then some of these outliers or some of the people that just fill in the random dots sort of kind of move to the edges and you get a much better representation of what you need. The problem with the fan surveys is though they only do about 500 of them. And they do them on an exit survey or something like that. So if you leave the game and you're pissed off because the team lost or, you know, like something bad happened at the game, you're going to get a really crappy survey. Um, So there's also the context and the timing of which you get that survey response, which, again, I don't think that they're irrelevant or useless. They're just they need to be put in the context of another tool to either validate or challenge the assumptions that come out of them. Yeah,
1: I would agree with that. I think that could be its own other discussion. So I'll put a pin in that for now, but maybe we'll have you back and discuss that in more detail. But one of the other things I want to make sure we cover, particularly, you mentioned this a little bit earlier in the podcast, is the distributed workforce impact of COVID. So from your perspective, kind of, you know, obviously given the strategic advisory, and not data parts of your business, what was the impact of COVID and what do you see as some of the lessons learned or some of the insights you can take now going forward? Obviously, it's not a post-COVID world, but obviously as COVID hopefully continues to recede.
2: Yeah, I think you and I have talked about this a little bit because I see you in your office and I envy the fact that you have a place to run away to sometimes. But um, look, I mean, I'm am a I'm a very emotional leader. I like to rev my team up, I like to bring them together, I like to hear how their day starts, pick up on visual cues if they're having a bad day. Um, if you're in the office, you'll know if somebody broke up with somebody or if somebody's parents have, are sick or if there's been a death in the family. Those things are lost over Zoom. Um, and as you know, a leader of a company, when you have dozens of employees, you're trying to pick up on those non-visual cues to kind of understand whether or not you should be engaging in this conversation with somebody or they're not really there or they need to have another conversation. And when you're a leader, you're also very busy. So you're bouncing from one call to another and you tend to jump right in. You don't do the small talk. There's not a lot of like that. So there's not a lot of opportunity to learn. So you can be into a conversation for 15 minutes and then have the, the employee start to like, Waver, look like they're going to you know, cry or something. And you're like, what didn't I pick up on? Like where, 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 where's the miss here? And they've got a lot of stuff going on outside of work that you just don't have an ability to kind of connect on. That is in- incredibly challenging for the way that I've grown up in business. I've grown up giving people high fives in the office, fist bumps, taking people out after work, just to kind of break down the crap that happens during the day. Um, those tools are sort of gone. So we have 20 something people in, I don't know, 10 different cities. Yeah, everybody's everywhere. And then you got to look at the financials of bringing them all together. Like I want to bring them together. We get a huge amount of energy and productivity when we're together, but it literally costs like $20,000 to fly everybody to someplace. And like, it's it's not possible on an ongoing basis. So how have
1: you been able to navigate that? Obviously it's a significant leadership challenge and having a distributed workforce. And do you see that in your employees, do you think that the employees are missing are they prioritizing having the freedom to work from home versus the co- the collective collaboration experience? I don't know.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, um, If you let yourself go to a dark place, you could be like, my employees aren't working. They're totally just, you know, they're totally just showing up for their Zoom calls. And then they're like off doing whatever the hell they want. But I think the quality of work that we deliver leads me to believe that I've got an an enormously talented, self-motivated team. They do get to work together more than I get to work with them. So there's a lot of side conversations and, and relationships that are being built that I'm not as privy to. Um, so I, I feel good about the culture we're building, but it takes really good hiring. You have to be very aware that you need more extroverts than introverts and you gotta stay true to the values of the business. In our in our case, you know, one of the things that we motivate ourselves on is like changing the world. And that has a lot of like pros and cons. You get very mission driven people with this company. Like and they and they'll and they'll fight for the stuff they care about. Women's sports, you better not chirp over here about the, you know, Super Bowl without acknowledging that something else was going on. Like, you know, sustainability, like you want to talk about a stadium, but you fail to ignore that they did something ridiculously, you know, bad for the environment. Um, talk about the, you know, the NASCAR race at the Coliseum, and it's like, well, you know, to what a to what expense? Like what are we doing? Our company has a bunch of employees that are motivated by like bringing up those topics and really fighting for them. That has been the one thing that I think has kept a gel um, around the culture in a way that, you know, normally would have dissipated, you know, given that we're all in different places. I do want to come back to the hiring visa, but before we do
1: that, I do want to also highlight the commitment to women's sports that the Sports Innovation Lab has made. You're better to talk about it than I am. So can you talk a little bit more detail about the commitment that Sports Innovation Lab has been to increasing the visibility of women's sports?
2: Yeah, my, my partner's a four-time Olympian. Um, she's one of the few women in the Hockey Hall of Fame. She was motivated to help start this company with me because she was pissed off that Women's sports didn't get considered um, on the same level as men's sports, not from an equity perspective purely, but much more from a business perspective um, resources perspective. Like there wasn't capital applied to it. There wasn't strategic work by McKinsey and others to kind of figure it out. So she's like, unless somebody can make the business case for women's sports, why would anybody invest in it? So she was highly motivated coming into the business to do that. And then, um, we had the opportunity to start, um, the athletes unlimited league with Jonathan Soros, um, and, um, that whole team there. And again, I think that what they're doing and what some of the other investors are doing in this space is they're starting to treat women's sports like a startup. That's just, hasn't been around as, as long as the, you know, um, men's league. So when you talk to the founders, like John Patrick Koff of the, of the athletes unlimited group, he, he talks about the fact that like, look, we, we've been at this for like four or five years. You know, you can't compare us to the the NBA. They've been around decades. So um, we just have a a full vision of like pounding on that drum until there's real equitable investment. Because I think XFL, you know, USFL, all these like men's leagues, they get to fail four or five times. You know, women's sports, like if you can't get a franchise off the ground, like somebody kills it and it doesn't come back. I don't know why that is. You know, I I don't know why, like, the men's leagues get to kind of come and blow up and then come back. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, like, sure, you can. How many startups fail? Lots. You know, how many (laughs) startups in sports fail? Lots. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So if women's sports is a startup, we got to tolerate a certain degree of failure, but we have to keep investing.
1: One of the investments that uh, Sports Innovation Lab has made is in the fan project. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, in terms of the resources you've committed, from that perspective,
2: yeah, the fan project is an interesting, um, nerdy way of thinking about collecting data from consumers. Um, the if you if you get into the world of data and you start talking to data nerds, everybody will lament the fact that the cookie is going away. Right, the cookie is the way that they track you. They also do a lot of location-based tracking on your cell phone. Apple's making that harder. You know, Meta is making it harder. Everybody's making it harder to track consumers um, because they all know how important that data is, Um, and they also don't want to get sued. Um, So in a world where all that's happening, there's there's another approach to collecting data from consumers, and it's called consent-based marketing. And for consent-based marketing, what you're really doing is you're saying, Adam, give me all of your personal data. I'll anonymize it, and in exchange, I'll give you something. It's a value exchange. It says, look, instead of me just sleuthing around, looking at your stuff without your permission, give me permission. Let me look at where you are. Let me track your location. I will anonymize it, and I will put it together with everybody else's, and then I'm going to sell insights into what Chicago Bulls fans care about and if you're like, man, I'm a Chicago's Bull fan, I think if the Chicago Bulls knew half of the stuff that the fans cared about, they would make it so much better to go to their games. You can have my data. What do I get? Oh, a jersey? Cool, yeah, here you go. So the the fan project was our early test on whether or not consumers would give us highly sensitive data, their entire social media history, the ability to scan their Gmail accounts, and every time we've asked them, they've let us do it. So, yeah, we bring the data in, we anonymize it, we analyze it.
1: And they do find that as a fair, you were talking about specifically in the exchange of data, like there's an impact of the data to their. Yeah.
2: And again, I think we have a unique brand there, Adam. I don't think everybody can do that. I think we're in a position where we can do it because we are committed to changing the future of sports. And I think fans care about that. I think if we were like, hey, we're going to use your data to make better, you know, teddy bears, they'd be like, I don't know. I like teddy bears, but I'm not sure I'm giving you my data.
1: One more question that we'll would end on the last question about hiring is you talk about the future of sports. So like from your perspective, and this is a pretty broad question, but if it were successful, what's the future of women's sports from your perspective in terms of some macro trends or macro data or macro things that you would see that would be indicative of success on a macro basis in terms of how you see the future of sports?
2: It's not a short answer because I, I'm on both sides of a fence. One side of the fence is... Banana ball, like one side of the fence is what they've been able to do with the Savannah bananas and like how they've turned it into pure entertainment community and energized an entire dying sport like baseball and made it really fun and exciting. You can do that in women's sports, but the narrative goes that if you do that, you diminish the professionalism of the athlete and you try to make it a circus and a sideshow. I don't think banana ball has done that. I think they have great baseball players, so I don't think that that's exactly true, but I see the argument. One of my big bones of contention is do that. Like, just make it freaking fun. Take a women's volleyball game and make it bananas. Like, take a women's lacrosse game and just change the rules so it's kind of really fun and crazy and they're doing things nobody else can do. The other side of the fence is sort of where I'm at with the the WNBA. has no swagger. Mm-hmm. And I can say that as a white man right. just kind of sitting outside the, you know, the arena going, where's the swagger? In my opinion, these are some of the most impressive athletes in the world. And they've invested nothing. In telling that swagger story. You saw a little bit of it at the at the draft, but like, where is the story about what these women have done to be at the top of their game? I always think about like how many of those players have brothers who they kick the shit out of on the court, right? Like, yeah. I'm sure all of their sisters. Kick the crap out of them, whether it was draining threes from the outside or just doing sick moves. And like, where are those brothers out there telling the story that like these women are legit? Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I love the WNBA as a product, but it's got so much room to grow. It's just like they could draft off of NBA's cool for for a long time and then just be its own thing. I'm really excited for that opportunity.
1: Yeah, that's going be another topic of conversation. Hopefully we'll have you back because I think that's very interesting the way you described it. But we are coming to the end of the time and want to end with the last question, which I've been hinting at for like a few minutes now, which is you were mentioning about the hiring process. You have a, hired a great team in Sports Innovation Lab. So from your perspective, given that we have so many students who listen to the podcast, what are you looking for when you're hiring people, either more senior positions or even more entry level positions as people who are trying to enter into the sports industry?
2: Yeah, first and foremost, I don't care if you have any experience in sports. So if you think you need to get an internship where the team doesn't pay you and they treat you like crap and that's your way in, like that's so old school, don't do it. Two is be curious and be curious about the things that you're genuinely curious about. Don't pretend you're curious, right? Like there's nothing harder than trying to feign interest in something. So follow your genuine passions, right? And those jobs exist in sports, So if your genuine passion is to create stuff, go into marketing. If your genuine passion is to deal with customers and like you love talking to people, go into customer service and don't go into sports. Go into marketing somewhere else, go into customer service and somewhere else, go into technology somewhere else, because you will learn probably more faster in those other industries and then bring that to sports. So the best candidates for me are like, hey, I have two or three years of experience in this other industry. I definitely um, differentiated myself and set myself apart from my other you know, peers my age because I was able to do X, Y, Z. And I know if I came to your company, I'd crush it that level of confidence that level of of performance and that level of sort of understanding of like how to present yourself is is just very um much at the core of what i look for i don't look at resumes anymore i definitely try to get a sense of who people are based on what they've done and what they've you know been able to achieve and i always try to find references I never hire somebody without a, like a solid base of references and not the people that they tell me they know. I usually try to find people that they didn't tell me they knew and see if I can talk to them.
1: When you're talking to the references, what are you looking for? The things you just talked about, or is there something else that you're looking for when
2: you're, yeah. Did they come about? to work with energy? Like, did they challenge you? Did they challenge themselves? Did Were they, you know? I want type A people, but not type A people that come into work and be like, I want to raise, I want to raise, I want to raise, I want to raise. They're type A in the sense that they're like always asking for more responsibility. And those are the people that get the raises. It's like if they can continue to proactively seek out more stuff to do, um, those are the people I'm looking to hire that's uh, a great place to leave it thank you josh for your insight you
1: got for your it, time. Man. it was definitely a wide-ranging conversation i'm glad we were able to do it hopefully we'll have you back on but josh washer thanks for being on the podcast
2: thanks for having me adam